Blog Talk Radio. It's time for the Hadit.com Radio Show. Hadit.com Radio is an in-depth look at all things VA. If you need help with the VA, log on to Hadit.com. Now, here's your host, Gerald Cook. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, on this uh, 27th day of June, 2019. We're here with our co-host, Jay Basser, and today our guest speaker is John Dorley. And uh, I hope you all are listening. If any of you have a question or comment, feel free to call in. Our call-in number is 347-237-4819. That call-in number, once again, is 347-237-4819. And then you hit number one. That'll put you in the queue here with us. And... uh, We'll try to keep an eye out. We don't always catch all the callers, uh, but we we try to. And uh, uh, we for sure want to hear from you. So, uh, Mr. Dorley, how are you doing today? I, I am good. I, I can't tell you how busy I am with this uh, Fields Modernization Act with the Veterans Administration. So, so yeah, Gerald, certainly if there's any callers out there that want to call in and talk about their case or appeals that would be great but uh yeah i'm sitting here in minnesota as, as usual and uh you know working away and uh how are you guys doing gerald how are you doing well i'm doing all right i just had a went for a cmp examination monday yeah how about I think, that I, I think it was monday <laughs> but anyway i was talking to the doctor i had a real doctor uh, MD, my lands. Uh, this time, the first time I've had quite a few CMP examinations, but this first time I had a real doctor. He did seem re- uh, very nice and knowledgeable, and uh, uh, we were talking about the claim system. And of course, he just threw his hands up. He said he didn't know what they were going to do <laughs> with right. that thing. Uh, it, you know, I told him we'd, we'd discussed it. Well, I didn't tell him I had a radio show we were going, but uh, I told him there was a lot of talk in the veterans community about uh, this new claim system. And, and uh, of course, we all have our fingers crossed it's going to work out for the better. And, right. uh, of course, we have to wait and see and try to work with it and, and make it work. You know, the one thing, Gerald, I'll comment about, uh, that's, that's what I like to do because it's such a hot topic with the Veterans Administration now, this new Appeals Management Act, uh, new Appeals Act. And, and one thing that, that is, is unfortunately starting to come to fruition, I think, and I predicted this in the beginning, I think overall the uh, – the new appeals act is, is necessary and good and it's going to work out in the long run. But what I, what I predicted is that it was going to hit a bubble where uh, initially their, their intentions are to, to rate these, these uh, claims uh, on appeals uh, within 125 days. And, and what they're finding is that 
uh, initially that was a good idea and that was happening. But what I'm finding, at least with a lot of my clients, a lot of cases I've been reviewing, is that they're not making very good decisions at the initial stage of the appeals, and they're getting appealed to a higher level. Uh, and in some cases, appeal to the Board of Veterans Appeals. And what that's creating is a glut. Um, so uh, my opinion is that these appeals are extending out farther and farther and farther every day, unfortunately. Uh, and, and I think a lot of it can be placed on the VA. Uh, some of it can be placed on the veterans putting together claims. Uh, but uh, a lot of it can be placed on the VA to adjudicating these claims properly. Uh, but, but, yeah, unfortunately, that's what we're seeing. But I think I, I still have uh, pretty good high hopes about the uh, – New Appeals Modernization Act that uh, became formally introduced uh, February 19th of 2019, but was originally rolled out in uh, November of 2017 under what's called the RAMP, the Rapid Appeals Modernization Program. But, but there's, uh-huh. no, there's no, nothing called RAMP anymore. It's called AMA, Appeals Modernization Act. Now, again, that was effective February 19th of 2019. So, uh, you know, Gerald, one of the big, big things with that is, is is, is transferring power from the old RAMP program to the new, appeal, new Appeals Modernization Act. And I'm finding a lot of the regional offices are, aren't quite understanding that. So, in fact, I got off the phone with uh, uh, one of the higher muckety-mucks the St. Petersburg, Florida VA regional office that was pretty convinced that uh, it was a specific way with a specific uh, situation that I had with one of my clients that I, I, I went toe-to-toe with her and I explained, no, I think you're wrong here. Research that. And it turned out I was right. So, uh, you know, that, and that's not a testament to me. That's just a testament to that, uh, especially with the VA. They're still trying to get their heads wrapped around the new Appeals Modernization Act. So we'll yes, see how it goes. Yes, they are. Uh, uh, yeah, he he was well aware of that. Uh, and, uh, you know, I was reading also about this uh, class action suit they have uh, going yeah. with uh, – uh, veterans, uh, you know, the, some of these claims have been going on for years and the appeals process and this and that. And they're trying to do a class action suit, from my understanding, to have a claim settled within, what, 120 days? And uh, that's going to take a lot of doing. I don't know, should that get passed, you know, and should they win? Yeah, I don't yeah, know. I, uh, uh, under the current system, I just don't see it going to happen. I mean, well, they uh, might pass the ruling, but I don't still don't see it happening. Yeah, I, I did review that some, Gerald, um, and, and I've always been of the opinion until it's actually written in law. I, I don't take it a whole lot of a lot of seriousness just because of the fact that that laws change or, or things change before you actually get it written in law. But from my understanding, is that the higher courts have, have allowed a specific law firm. I think the National Veterans Legal Services Program, the NVLSP, also is on board with this. But but it's given uh, the higher court has given them the opportunity to pursue class action suits. As far as I know, there isn't an actual class action suit evolving where they're recruiting veterans to apply to this class action. Uh, They have four veterans uh, right at the moment that I've read, and uh, I don't know that they're trying to solicit more, but uh, they do have enough to proceed. And uh, I don't know where, you know, if it's... uh, 
cut and dry that they're actually going to further pursue this or what they're going to do. I don't know that they've made up their mind quite yet. Yeah, I, I think the four, the four have it going with their particular law firm. But but as far uh-huh. as expanding to a class action suit, I haven't seen, like you said, I haven't seen any, any recruitment. And, and for those people that are listening out there, that basically, from what I understand anyway, that uh, if, if a veteran's been waiting a specific period of time with respect to their claims on appeal, uh, they could be entitled to some sort of damages for, for waiting as long as they have. Now, h- how long that wait is, I don't know. I haven't seen anything like that, what parameters you'd have to meet. Um, but but uh, I, I think that certainly that's going to get the VA's attention, especially if it ends up paying out to, in, in, the, in the millions of dollars on a class action suit for sure. For sure. I would, uh, you know, that might be something that would help resolve this issue we have going on with uh, some of these regional officers, some of the raiders. Uh, you know, if if the BA has to start paying a penalty for not resolving a cl- an issue or a claim or an appeal, they might work a little harder, but unfortunately, in my own experience, I found a lot of evidence just don't come out in piles. Uh, your claims folder, uh, in the beginning, I mean, my land, it takes years to get your, uh, some people get their claims folder halfway complete. And yep. that's where uh, we're running into a major issue because it might be five years before you say, well, looky here, uh, right here it is. And uh, you've, that's why I always stress to keep your claims folder updated and, uh, to everyone. <laughs> now, Well, yep, and there are horror stories like that, Gerald, I know your case pretty well, and I know you've run into that quite a bit. Um I always tell veterans, especially transitioning veterans, is get a copy of your VA claims file, uh, uh, get a copy of your service medical records as you're transitioning from active duty service uh, to civilian life for sure. And then, oh, and then once, yeah. And then if you're out of the military for for a while and you filed claims in the past and you've gone round and round at the VA before and you haven't secured a copy of your VA claims file, it's never a bad idea to try to secure a copy of that. Just send a Freedom of Information Act FOIA release to the Department of Veterans Affairs, forward it on to the Records Management Center in St. Louis, Missouri. Now, they are booked out of ways. Unfortunately, it takes anywhere from six to ten months to get a copy of your VA claims file, but I think it's always good just to have a copy, you know, just to see what's in there. Yes, absolutely. And yep. when you read through it, you may notice, well, but it's not in my opinion, complete, I think. Uh, I remember this or that or something else, and it's not in here, and why? And it may take them, uh, it may take years to get get the, an updated factual claim file uh, where you have access uh, to, to where you... Once a, a veteran, you become the POA for a veteran, uh, you can go in there and actually look at it 
Mm-hmm. And and you can make a determination, you know, I think this thing's missing some stuff or something's not quite kosher here. We need to get this squared away. And that that saves a lot of time. Yeah, a lot of times what happens, Gerald, is, is in my experience they've seen uh, there are outpatient records and there are inpatient hospital records. And a lot of times what happens is is hospital records, meaning if a veteran stayed overnight or an extended period of time, they don't all they don't always associate with uh, UV, UV service medical records. It used to be called service medical records. Now they're being called some service treatment records. But what I've been finding is that a lot of times those hospital records are just sitting in the repository at a specific hospital that, that the veteran was seen in, whether it's stateside or overseas. And even many years after the fact, those records sometimes are still sitting there. They never associate themselves with the actual service medical record jacket. So, so a lot of times what happens, sometimes it's a needle in the haystack, but, but a lot of times when, when a veteran claims I was treated at a specific uh, hospital, uh, yet they're not part of the service medical record jacket, we encourage the VA to, to send a release to those hospitals. They have employees that actually contact these hospitals and, and sometimes they are sitting there. They just never got retired for whatever reason. So I would say to all the veterans listening out there, uh, you're looking at your service medical records. You don't see hospital records in there. That might be why. Uh, yes. And, you know, another issue is that when I was in the service, uh, we had the medic uh, there. I think everybody's had their own medic. And... Uh, we had a medic in the barracks, and if you wasn't feeling good or something, you go down and give you this little box. I think they were called APCs, and uh, they give you cough syrup. I'm trying to remember if they give you antibiotics or not. I think they could, uh, and or shots of penicillin or whatever. But uh, see, a lot of that may not show up in your your medical records. In, in, in fact, most of the time it's not. It doesn't show up like in your day, Geraldine, even to some degree in, in, in my day, in the 80s. Uh, yes. And, I mean, it was a situation where you, you went to the, the medic and he had some ibu- he or she had some ibuprofen or some antibiotics or, or you know, whatever, some eye drops, and they just give it to you and shoot you on yeah. your way. That's never recorded, and, and you don't even think about getting it recorded until, you know, 20 years after you're out of the military, and and uh, you start to, you know, understand that that might have been important to get recorded. Uh, absolutely, and uh, you know, uh, you didn't go to the hospital over to the hospital unless you was in a near death situation. I mean, that's the way they were. Uh, only right. sissies went on sick call, you know. So, you know, uh, when, you know, on that topic, Gerald, it, it, it's interesting. I was just working on a case and I did some research, and I, um, they've been using this argument for quite some time. But, but a lot of service members, they intentionally don't go on sick call or go to the hospital for fear of losing flight status or jump status or, or for your combat veterans. They don't go on sick call. They don't, they don't want to get pulled off the line. They don't want to leave their their battle buddies and their comrades. So, so what happens is that. They just suck it up and, and worm their way through it, and they don't go to sit call. They they don't get it recorded. But, but what's happening is that uh, most advocates know this, but, but but what veterans have to understand is that even if your service medical records are void of any specific disability, 
that you're filing, uh, it's important to know that the VA, by law, has to reconcile their military occupational specialty, otherwise known as a MOS. Um, uh, they have to yeah. look at what the job was. That would be more than basic training in AIT and, and A school, that kind of thing. But, but it's got to be a, a type of MOS that would have caused or as likely as not cause some extreme strenuous stress to to the body on a regular basis. So your 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 eleven bravos, your combat veterans, your marines, your combat veterans that way too, or or any other profession where you were exposed to extreme uh, wear and tear on the body. So so the point I'm making is that even if your service medical records are void, the VA still has to reconcile your military occupational specialty. And I always push push the uh, VA to get these guys in for compensation exams and let the uh, doctors make an opinion, whether it's at least as likely as not, that uh, this soldier who is uh, serving in Iraq, carrying 100-pound rocks, kicking down doors in Fallujah, uh, uh, as likely as not has a back problem because of that issue or a knee problem or, or a foot problem or, or something to that effect, despite it not being in the service medical record. So um, that, that's, that's something I've been using for quite some time. Well, you're right there. Uh, you know, I've seen photographs of some of these people, uh, veteran or military personnel over there in the Middle East and and my lands. Uh, <laughs> them backpacks they're carrying out of sight. Uh, you got to be a horse to pack <laughs> anything around. <laughs> and here they are marching them here, there, and everywhere. Uh, and then they, uh, you know, when the, they get out of service and their knees are shot and their ankles are shot and their back is all buggered up, then uh, uh, they don't want to do nothing for them. Uh, you right, can't, right. you can't pack them kind of stuff all day long, and then you're in the battlefield conditions. That's even worse. So. Uh, I don't know. Uh, that's going to be a lot of. I I'd say a lot of pain and misery coming to a bunch of veterans. It's getting out. Well, you know, today's soldier is a lot more mechanized, and and and, and you, you carry a lot more. It's, it's a lot heavier. It's a lot more wear and tear in the body. And that's not to say that wasn't a lot of wear and tear throughout history of, of the military, but but. Uh, all darn! I, I look at some of these combat soldiers, and I, when I was in the '80s, and I, I never carried anything close to that. You know, I had my M16 and my my LBD and my my, my pouches and the whole thing. It, it might yeah. have been forty, might have been forty pounds at, at the most. Yeah. So I forget what it was when I was in, but it's not. It was nothing like what they're doing now. They're carrying up to. Uh, what nearly their body weight, and uh, yeah, and that's uh, I think that's too much. I just don't believe your body's uh, created to take that sort of abuse, uh, especially very long. Well, and, and, and then especially there, there is, yeah, uh, yeah, in a battlefield condition. Yeah. You gotta jump around and duck and cover and do all this other stuff lugging a hundred pounds. No. Uh, yeah, yeah, tell that to the to the my clients that are combat vets in Afghanistan. Those mountains yeah. in Afghanistan. Yeah. 
I mean, well, just, I feel sorry. You got to be uh, part part mountain goat to to get around that area. You bet. Yeah. Uh, up and down them hills and rocks and oh man. Right. 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 Uh, right. I don't envy any of them. They've, yeah, they're going to pay a heavy price. Gerald, one of the things I was going to, you know, kind of pop in my head, I think it's always worth reminding veterans uh, that serve in the Middle East, um, because more often than not, uh, my clients that serve in the Middle East aren't aware of this, but, but there are, uh, there's a thing called the Persian Gulf War Syndrome. And, and so if, if you have a, a disability, it's an undiagnosed disability. Whereas a doctor can say, yeah, I believe you have this issue. I just don't know what it is. You could be compensated for an undiagnosed disability. Now, there are three disabilities that if diagnosed and you served in the Middle East, you could be compensated for, even if you're diagnosed well after active duty service. That's lower digestive problems, fibromyalgia, and chronic fatigue syndrome. So if you're not sure what those last two are, most people know what lower digestive issues are, like IBS and stuff like that. Irritable yeah. bowel syndrome, but but the but the last two, a lot of veterans don't know what that is. So you might want to educate yourself and and Google uh, fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue syndrome. Get a good working understanding of what the medical medical community says it is. And if that's a, if that's if it sounds like something that that you're experiencing and you serve in the Middle East, you may be entitled to compensation. So that that's another thing to to, to very much be aware of for you. For you, uh, service members, members who served in the Middle East, and I, I, I'm not talking the OIF, Operation Iraqi Freedom, them and uh, Desert Storm, Desert Shield, uh, that served in the Middle East. Yes, I think uh, any location they was in over there, they was in a bad deal. Um, I know of one veteran that was uh, involved in Project Shad. That was awarded 100% based on undiagnosable ailments. Uh, he had to go to that clinic, uh, forget where it's at, that specializes in that. And uh, he was a Project uh, Shad veteran, okay. and uh, he he got diagnosed uh, with with that okay. undiagnosable. And they gave him a hundred percent. Yep. So yep. it and I can I don't know why uh more veterans from the Middle East because my lands you you bring the burn pits into this mess and and we got some some sick people and we we have veterans dying prematurely uh because of Dealing with those burn bits, uh, I yep. was reading yep. some stuff on it just the other day of uh, chemical diseases. Uh, it's uh, sad. It, it really is, and they're having a heck of a time trying to get service connected. Yeah, yeah, Gerald. It it, it is difficult. You, you know, you think that. Uh, we're not picking on anyone, but you think we'd learn a lesson from what happened in Vietnam, Agent Orange exposure, that kind of thing. Um, you know, when you expose our soldiers, sailors, and airmen to, to contaminants on active duty, uh, I'm going back to Desert Storm, Desert Shield, the bromide pills and, and those other types of uh, pills that were given, the inoculations in combination with the pills seemed to, uh-huh. to cause things to go, go haywire. Then they, there was the... Uh, 
the ionizing radiation exposure at Kamasia in, in, in Iraq during Desert Storm, Desert Shield. So a lot of radiation in the air at that point in time that are causing some issues. Then, uh, of course, with the Operation Iraqi Freedom, a lot of things are on, too. Um, and, and then, of course, with the burn pits you talked about, Gerald. I mean, they, the people I'm talking to, they said they burned everything in those burn pits. I mean, plastics and garbage and feces and everything that can burn was burned in those yes. burn pits. And, and uh, you catch that stench downwind for an extended period of time, it's going to cause problems. Absolutely. And that yeah. said, they burnt for days on end. I mean, that wasn't just one to. day of burning. Yeah, uh, got to. Yeah, and they threw everything in them. And my lands. Uh, oh, boy. I, I feel sorry for those people. So we're we're filing a lot of claims like that, Gerald. Uh, you know, one of the things I always ask veterans is if they were exposed to burn pits in Iraq or Afghanistan or really any any country that they served in, Kosovo, uh, uh, those other uh, former Baltic nations uh, that we've served in, uh, burn pits all over. And so a lot of times, what I try to uh, ask the veterans if they're having any type of respiratory issues, reactive lung disease or asthma, exercise-induced asthma, any breathing problems at all. Uh, I automatically file for service connection as as secondary to burn pit. And and so what happens is typically the veteran's going for a compensation exam, and a doctor will you know, look at the evidence of record and determine is at least as likely as not that this person's diagnosis is in fact related to uh, uh, contaminant burn pit exposure. Um, That's right. Sometimes and they in our favor, sometimes so it isn't. Yeah, and they burnt so many different agents, it'd be impossible to track down one agent, I believe. I don't know. They're pretty good on their chemistry stuff anymore, but uh, to nail it down to one agent, when it was just a concoction of stuff that they burnt, and and my land, anything they burnt, probably more than likely would... Uh, do a poor person under. I mean, your lungs ain't designed to breathe that kind of stuff. You got to be a chemist almost. I mean, it's uh, yeah. You could you could burn one or two things together and it wouldn't have any effect, but you had to hurt active that could cause a, a carcinogenic problem. So yeah, yeah. Uh, there's many different things that they did burn. I don't think they paid any attention. If it was there and they didn't want it around. They burned it. Right, right. So, but uh, so, what else is on your mind, Gerald? Anything else? Well, I don't know. We can get back to this uh, appeals yeah. stuff, and I don't know. You say right now it's showing that you kind of got a. Uh, it, it's kind of reached a blockage situation where uh, the appeals seem to be gathering up again in, in uh, uh, certain areas. Yeah, yeah, I, I, and I predicted that. Cause, cause it, 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 and I think for the most part, the decision review officers that I talk to, they, they try to make the best decision, but the problem we're having is that uh, when you appeal a decision, uh, under what's called a supplemental lane, 
it doesn't go to a decision review officer who's a more experienced adjudicator goes to what's called the rating specialist um, and, and they're just not as experienced and so what they're doing is they're kicking out poor decisions and when I say poor decisions I'm, I'm talking about legally flawed they're not looking at all the regulations that, that, that have to, they have to abide by with the Code of Federal Regulations that the VA goes by. And so what happens is that we're having to kick that up to a higher level review under this Appeals Modernization Act where a decision review officer gets it. Um, and what's happening is, is, is under this, this higher level review, these decision review officers are getting them, uh, and, and they're under the gun to turn these things around pretty quick. And, and I'm all for turning around claims quick, but if you do it quick, sometimes you miss things and you get denials, and next thing you know, you're having to appeal to the Board of Veterans' Appeals. So it's kind of a cyclical effect. Uh, but but I, I've always said that uh, if, 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 if you get the decision right the first time, you don't have to appeal it. And so what's happening is, is we're getting initial decisions. We're having to appeal it under that initial cert, uh, supplemental lane review, um, and these supplemental lane review uh, adjudicators uh, like I said, they're rating specialists, they're not decision review officers, and, and they're just not making the decisions that they're supposed to be making. So uh, that's frustrating, and that, that's really what's taken a long time. They they had a 125-day goal to, to adjudicate those things, um, and because uh, the initial decisions are so poor, uh, they're, they're falling behind on those appeals. It, it, it's way past 125 days now. So I, I, I saw this coming. Uh, I still think the Appeals Modernization Act is, is a work in progress, and I think they'll work out the kinks. But, but I think what I'm seeing now with a lot of claims, and my clients is we're hitting that bubble where the initial re, the initial thoughts with these uh, adjudicators was to get a decision within 125 days, and that's just not happening anymore. And uh, I mean, it's going way past that. Uh, even even with the Board of Veterans Appeals, which is another option under this Appeals Modernization Act, they're at least a year out. Um, so, um, yeah, it, it is what it is. I, I still think it's a good program. I've gotten a lot of good decisions that were a lot quicker, uh, whereas under the old legacy appeals process, we'd still be waiting. Um, but it's not perfect. You know, we work with it the best we can, Gerald, and, and uh, uh, hopefully it works out. Uh, you know, they keep on it. It does look like they're trying to do something. I believe it, there's all indications showing that they're so far understaffed with uh, properly trained personnel. It, uh, although it's a good program, they're not prepared to actually implement this program. I mean, if you're that short on personnel, properly trained personnel, I mean, uh, how long does it take to train someone to become a proper writer? That takes, uh, that's not something that happens overnight, and uh, they, they just can't give them a few months of schooling. Uh, I think you're talking years of experience to be a good writer. Yeah, it, it's trial by fire. I think they throw a lot of these uh, these raiders out there, and they just uh, uh, they do the best they can. And certainly, have coaches and assistant coaches that that they're double checked on and they're mentored those types of things. But but uh, you know they, they miss things too. Um, what I do appreciate with the VA is is most VA regional offices they have a leadership team. 
And I don't think there's any regional offices except one or two, which I'll pick on later because I just what I do. And they, um, but uh, most of the regional offices, they have a leadership team, and, and I have an access to their email addresses. And more often than not, they do reply. And, and if I have a decision that comes out or if I have a letter that comes out where a, a, a raider or a veteran service officer or somebody like that is developing it, in a way that's not appropriate, um, I'll call them on it. I'll, I'll contact the leadership team, and 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 if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I'm not I'm not right all the time, but but uh, I like to think doing this almost 30 years, I got a pretty good handle on this. And so if I bring something to them, uh, more often than not, they're going to say, yeah, we'll have to take a look at it and come back later and say, yeah, you're right, we'll fix it. So I just had that happen today with the uh, uh, St. Petersburg, the regional office there. So. Uh, so, so the point being is that uh, they're trying, and, and, I, and I think that I take it upon myself and other experienced uh, agents and attorneys that I've talked to, they take it upon themselves to, to, to communicate with these uh, these DROs, with the VA and the leadership team, and say, hey, I, I think you might have missed this one. And, and more often than not, they're open to it to, to try to correct it. And, and so, yeah, I mean, that's good. Um, but... Uh, yeah, I've got, you know, I do this every time I call in. I, I you know, I, I, I like to extol the virtues of some of the Bay regional offices. I, I think St. Paul continues to, to do a really good job. I, I think San Diego is really good. Uh, I, I think there are other uh, regional offices that do their best. Uh, but uh, um, if, if there's two regional offices that really need work, uh, Baltimore and Houston, can't say it enough, especially Houston. I just wring my hands with those people. I tell you, it just gets to the point where they just ignore you. I mean, it's total disrespect. Or it's just, <laughs> but I, yeah, I'm picking on Houston this time. It's like, hey, Houston, if you're out there listening, get your act together. You got a lot of veterans that need your help. You know, uh, Houston, <laughs> that's been ongoing for for uh, several years, uh, John. Yeah, I mean, Houston has. Uh, now, I understand Waco is a little bit better to work with, uh, but uh, they, Houston, uh, uh, they have some issues there. I don't know what it is, but uh, I, under, I personally love people, I guess. I, I personally love working with Waco. I, I, I got in early with Waco, and the word spread. I got a lot of clients at Waco. I I, I've got uh, the decision review officers. I, I, I work with them. The uh, veteran service center manager is good. I, for the most part, they do a pretty good job in Waco. I, you know, could they do better? Sure. But uh, I've had some hearings at Waco, and, and it, it's worked out pretty good at Waco. But, but Houston's something else. I, I think they think they're autonomous to the entire world because uh, they, they just, they're not proactive at all. And, and I think you're right, Gerald. That's been going on a long time. And, and I think who is really to blame? Is probably uh, uh, the undersecretary and the secretary. They got to lower the hammer on those people. I, I, Houston just got a new director too, and, and oh. I think he would have turned it around. But but uh, um, I, I don't see a whole lot good come out of Houston. So I'm sorry, I'm not going to pick on Houston too much. I mean, they, I, I think there's some good people out there. They definitely try, but 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 you know, if I had to pick one regional office, I would not want my claim at would be Houston. Baltimore would be second. Yeah. Uh, 
you know, you would think it it's supposed to be constant from one regional office to another. And yep. I'm sure there's those that try to keep it that way. Uh, but it don't always happen. Uh, sometimes some of them get slipped up, and I don't know what happens to the staff. Uh, uh, I think it's a, a, a personnel problem of some sort. Because as a rule, like you said, you can contact a lot of these uh, uh, writers and talk to them, and they they make sense, you know. Uh, they're, right. Uh, they'll try to work with you, but then there's uh, also at the same time there's some that uh, their mind's made up, and I don't care what you tell them. Uh, they say that's their opinion. They don't care about yours. <laughs> well, and, and they do answer to someone, and and you know it's kind of a kind of kind of a unique situation. For instance, let's say I have a, a decision review officer that made a decision, and I go into my my online tool, the Veterans Benefits Management System, and I go into the notes, and I know what regional office handled it. Um, so so while I they don't they don't like us contacting DROs directly unless a DRO calls us. But the regional offices that I work with, uh, they prefer they have liaisons. They prefer that we contact the assistant director or the veteran service center manager, and that's what I like to do. And and yeah. and, and, and I contact them directly and say, I, respectfully, I think your drill missed this one, and this is why. Item one, item two, item three, and I go into detail. And and every time they'll say. Thanks for bringing that to our attention. We'll have someone look at it and get back with you. Sometimes it works in my favor. Sometimes it don't. In most cases where it doesn't, there's usually some dialogue back and forth to at least get some clarification as far as to where the VA is coming from on this. Um, and like well, I said, if I'm wrong, true. I'll admit it. But but I don't think uh, I am most of the time. All, uh, all too much of the time, you don't really know what, the raider is actually looking for, or what the raider feels that they personally need to uh, justify an award, and I believe that that's coming into play a lot of times, and uh, I I believe the the more experienced raiders you don't have such, you know that much of an issue with it'd be the younger ones usually the more experienced raiders are made draws decision review officers so so what you're getting is that initial decision from uh rating veteran specialists called RVSRs uh so oftentimes they they are promoted from desk clerks or or paper pushers and and they're they're a raider um, and so my experience is they have average uh, experience of anywhere from two to five years, six years, somewhere around there. So, I mean, they have enough time to get their feet wet, just enough time to be dangerous. And, and, and they do have coaches and assistant coaches they can always go to. So there's not a whole lot of excuses for them to not make the correct decision in the first place. But when they don't, uh, then we appeal. Uh, and, and, again, it gets complicated because when you appeal, it's that new appeals modernization act. If you appeal under what's called a supplemental lane review, 
which you have new and relevant evidence you can present to the VA, that goes uh-huh. to a rating specialist again. It doesn't go to a decision review officer. So you're back in the pot with someone with maybe two to four to five years of experience. Uh, and, and, and so you might get another erroneous decision. And if that happens, then you have the right to appeal to a, a decision review officer via what's called the higher level review. Um, uh-huh. And those are droves. And decision review officers, for the most part, they know their, they know their stuff they're pretty good. But, of course, I've come across some other droves that I thought, well, maybe you shouldn't be a drove. Uh, but... Uh, um, but, but under this Appeals Modernization Act, just so people know, uh, there's, there's two regional offices in the country. That's all they do is uh, uh, higher-level review appeals. One's in Seattle and one is in St. Petersburg, Florida. Uh, uh-huh. And so they're tasked to do, uh, uh, under the Appeals Modernization Act, the higher-level reviews. Um, St. Pete has um, gotten better, but, but they had a lot to improve on, too. But um, but, but I, St. Pete is is okay. I think they're 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 doing the best they can. Uh, Seattle, I think, is trial by fire too. I, I think they're. I think both regional offices are are were handed a really extremely difficult task, and they're just making the the best that they can with it. What's What's nice about those two re- regional offices, uh, they're called DROC Decision Review Officer. Uh, uh, centers um, and 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 so what's nice about them is I have an inward uh, liaison there that I can always go to directly and 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 they're they'll always answer my email within that day so it, it's kind of nice to be able to get a decision corrected on the spot if it merits it. Well, that's a good deal when you can do that. Um, I don't know. Have you heard anything about them adding more uh, raiders or judges? I know at one time that they had, uh, uh, they was going to add more judges. Yeah. Although I think adding more raiders would be quite important too. Well, I mean, it gets down to tax dollars and their budget. They have a certain budget they have to meet. And I know that sounds like a bureaucratic answer, but uh, um, they have a certain amount of money that they have to deal with. And and uh, a lot of the higher-ups would say, you don't need more raiders. You need more education. You need more experience. You need to make better decisions. Because if you make better decisions, if you're more efficient, we don't need to hire new people. So I, I think that's a lot of times what they're under the gun is being more efficient, uh, being quicker with the decisions, uh, rating them properly, whether they're denied or approved, uh, just rate them properly. Um, so, I, you know, I, it, it's frustrating. It's Like I said on previous shows, I started in this, in this location in 1992. Um, good God, it was, it, it was awful back then. I mean, it's gotten better, if you can believe it. Uh, but uh, um, and I think there's some good people that are trying to make it work. But uh, rolling out this new Appeals Modernization Act, you know, we're going to hit some bumps in the road, and we've hit some already. And so these are the cards we're dealt with, and that's what we're going to have to deal with. And so, um, so far, I think overall it's working out pretty good. But, but there are some some issues with it that that the, that the VA is still trying to work out. I think. Well, one thing I'd like to see stopped uh, with all this uh, 
claims process is the uh, remands. I think that's just mm-hmm. a cop-out. I think if it goes up to a higher court, instead of them remanding it back, the higher court should, should uh, go ahead and correct the situation and make it right. Uh, these remands cost a veteran a lot of time, and uh, sometimes many years. And when you get well, three or four remands, uh, you made up ten years pretty easy. I think what the Board of Veterans Appeals would say, the administrative law judges, is that uh, most of them would tell me the last thing they want to do is remand a decision. But, but they're, they're obligated by law, and according to their job, they have to make sure that these regional offices follow specific law and specific protocol. Um, and, and if they get an appeal on their desk and, and they see that a regional office, whether it's any regional office in the country, didn't follow specific protocol according to the regulations, they have no choice but to remand it back. Um, but, but, Gerald, you are right to some degree. I, I, I've seen some, well, you're right to a large degree. Uh, I, I've seen some remands come back, and I think to myself, you know, you just could have granted that based on CFR 3.102, reasonable doubt, or relative equipoise. Yes. I, I think those are two main issues that if an administrative law judge at the Board of Veterans Appeals asked me, John, if there's one thing that you could change about the way we do things, what would it be? I'd say give these veterans more of a benefit of the doubt under reasonable doubt doctrine. Look at these uh, doctors' opinions. Apply relative equipoise. And, and relative equipoise is basically you have a, a medical opinion in your favor that is just as probative, if not more, than any controverting medical opinion against you, taken into all the uh, evidence of record. And, and so, so I think your point is valid, Gerald, because I think a lot of these law judges at the Board of Veterans Appeals could certainly disband with a remand and just grant it outright based on those two uh, uh, legal requirements. Well, yes, and um, that's been a major complaint of mine for so long, they're in a position that they could actually do something, and but they're not doing it. And, and to me, they're not fulfilling their their uh, obligation that they were put into that position for. Uh, they're swapping it back to the regional offices, although the regional office is the reason that it's in in such a mess and, yep. and this and that and try to make uh, the judges trying to force the regional office to do the right thing. Uh, however, the veterans are the one who's paying the penalty. And, and, and I think it comes down to, and we've talked about this before, is putting and preparing a solid claim right off the bat. Don't let it get to the point where you have to appeal it or send it to the Board of Veterans Appeals. And that comes with educating veterans, educating veteran service officers, educating myself as, as a power of attorney agent, educating attorneys. Uh, you know, put that solid claim together right off the bat. You win it, everyone's happy. But, but you're right, Gerald. I don't want to pick on the Board of Veterans Appeals. I've gotten some, some kick-butt decisions from the Board of Veterans Appeals and just nail it. Um, and, and for the for the most part, I've always said if there's one entity that, that, that I, I really do appreciate is the Board of Veterans Appeals. Do they make mistakes? Sure. Uh, 
I think I, I think they do make mistakes, and I think that's I think they would even say that too. Otherwise, we wouldn't have a court of actions appeals above that. Uh, but uh, I think for the most part, you get a pretty good shake at the board of out of the board of veterans appeals in Washington D.C. And, and sometimes when they do remand, you think, yeah, I mean, you didn't have to remand that; you could have just granted it. But I, I get decisions from the board that don't even remand; they don't even deny that they grant right out outright. Uh, or you may have ten items up for appeal at the board of veterans appeals, and they, they'll grant five and deny two and remand three. And so I mean, some of these some of these claims you, you gotta you gotta you gotta take the good with the bad, I guess. But uh, uh, for the most part, I think the board of veterans appeals does a pretty good job. What, what what irks me though is some of these regional office decisions at that ground level on these appeals, these decisions that are coming out. Where they don't recognize reasonable doubt. They don't recognize relative equipoise. They don't instruct compensation exams to to, to uh, examine the veterans the way that they should be. Uh, they don't look at aggravation. They only look at causation. That's one of my biggest things, Gerald, is, is that when I file a secondary claim, let's say a veteran has has a bad right knee, uh, but uh, we file the left knee, even though we know there's nothing in the service medical records about the left knee, but we file that left knee based on overuse of that right knee, uh, antalgic gait, irregular walking pattern, overuse. Sure as heck, nine times out of ten, the raider will send the veteran in for a compensation exam and, and instruct the compensation examiner to address direct causation. And they don't look at aggravation, and so we have to appeal it, and then the veteran has to get into exam. So you know, if they just look at the basics uh, you know, Advocacy 101, VA 101, if they just look at the basics, they could avoid a lot of appeals that would come out later on. Oh, yes. I agree. Uh, and and that might be one of the issues that they're, they're falling back on. Uh, and there has to be a reason for that, John. Could it be that they're they're afraid to give the benefit of the doubt to the veteran. I mean, you know, you can look at all the evidence that's presented and say it's a possibility. Uh, you know, uh, from all this here I'm looking at, it's quite possible. Maybe he's missing something. Uh, you don't know what, but you can still give him the benefit of the doubt. Uh yeah, yeah. And, well, and they're they're not doing that. It's like they're afraid to give the benefit of the doubt. Well, you're right. The the, the key is it's got to be more than a possibility. I always tell veterans I could go buy a lottery ticket today and I could win the Powerball. It's possible. Uh, but what we have to look at is is it at least as likely as not that service connection is in order? Is there at least a reasonable doubt in the veteran's favor? Is it fifty fifty in favor of the veteran? Every tie goes to the runner with veterans. Uh, so if you have evidence against and evidence for, it's all it's all the same, 50-50, tie goes to the runner to the veteran. So it, it's got to be at least as likely as not reasonable doubt. Um, so um, and, and and even that isn't addressed properly with these compensation examiners. So and, and they have a physician's assistants and nurse practitioners doing it, and well, bless their hearts. I mean, they're they're great caregivers. They, to me, they just don't hold the metal that, that actual doctors, Ph.D.-level doctors have, uh, specialists, uh, those types of things. 
Um, I, I know they're trying to cut corners and save time by instructing PAs and physician's assistants, what a PA is, and nurse practitioners and doing these compensation exams. But, but uh, I've seen some god-awful opinions from it. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a nurse practitioner. I'm not a physician's assistant. But, but doing this 30 years, I, I think I know a thing or two about a thing or two. And, and so you can almost pick out an opinion done by a nurse practitioner or physician's assistant. They should just have doctors do it, period. It's preferably specialists, not just general practitioners, but, but specialists that, uh, uh, that aren't a jack-of-all-trades but master of none, but a master of one would be really the key. So, so when you're looking for an opinion uh, for lower digestive issues, you go to a gastroenterologist. If, 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 if you have endocrine problems, you go to a uh, uh, endocrinologist, you know, those types of things. So uh, those, 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 that's some of the that I have concerns about with the VA and their compensation exams. Uh, yeah, I can I can see where they, they need to, that's one of the issues they need to work on, that's for sure. But uh, uh, where... I have heard of them, uh, warden cases, the benefit of the doubt, or they feel it as though the the evidence is 50-50, and they'll award the veteran, of course. Um, But uh, you don't hear too many of them, though. I mean, the veteran pretty well has to have it nailed down, or he's not going to win. Yeah, uh, it, it seems like that. Um, where else, other areas that the uh, VA falls flat on, I think, is is reconciliation of, of medical opinion. So, so basically, when you have a decision that's denied and you present new and relevant evidence by an expert medical opinion, uh, and you put that into the VA, and the VA decides to do another compensation exam. Uh, what, what these adjudicators are not having these compensation examiners do is, is reconcile that new and relevant opinion. Basically, that means the doctor has to say, um, okay, this is my decision. I'm still denying it, and, and I'm taking into account Dr. So-and-so's opinion, and this is why I think Dr. So-and-so is wrong, and I'm still right. That's called a basic reconciliation of an expert opinion. I'm not seeing that... Uh, uh, adjudicators are asking examiners to do that, or oftentimes I'll see an adjudicator ask an examiner to reconcile that expert opinion, but but the examiner doesn't do it. So we appeal, oh. appeal, appeal, appeal. I mean that that's just bogged down and um, just bogs everyone down. Um, I don't well, want to appeal. Well, the remands and the, the appeals process, both of those need. Uh, to be scrutinized, I believe, a lot more than what they're they're doing. Uh, They have to cut the appeals down, and they they have to do something about these remands because the ones, the judges or the courts that keep doing these remands, when they're in a position to go ahead and make a decision, if they find something wrong and they say, this is wrong because the regional office messed it up. Instead of reprimanding the individuals that sent it up there to them in the first place, unprepared, uh, they're the ones that should 
should pay the price, not the veteran. And if the court sees that something was done wrong, they should go ahead and ward the doggone claim. Yeah, I mean, that in, 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 the, in the best of both worlds, that would be a good thing to do. But these, these administrative law judges, uh, they're held to specific standards. Um, and to grant a claim just because uh, they want to penalize the regional office and reward the veteran, unfortunately, uh, they just can't do that. They, they have to be held to certain standards on why they're going to grant the claim, and they have to back it up. And But I hear what you're saying. I mean, the point being is that if, if something's been remanded a couple times, you'd think the Board of Veterans Appeals Law Judge would say, well, this is ridiculous. Why is this back in front of me? Oh, they made this mistake again. This, they made that mistake again. Uh, I'm just going to grant the thing. You know, that'd be nice, but then uh, they're called on the carpet. I mean, they, they're overseen. They're looked at by their work. I mean, and, and the thing is, if, if the Court of Veterans' Appeals get the hold of it, uh, then the Board of Veterans Appeals is slapped on the hand if the Court of Veterans Appeals grants it or sends it back on a remand. Uh, so I, I hear what you're saying, Gerald, but, but those judges, they're, they're, they got a pretty tight leash. I, I think they're pretty much held on what they do and what they don't do, and they have to back it up with, with uh, regulations and, and uh, precedent opinions and all those other things that go into those decisions. Well, yeah, but that's that's hard to accept. I, I, I know I know what you're saying, but the end result is the veteran is suffering the consequences of someone's uh, incompetency, and uh, uh, someone, yeah. But you know what, Gerald? Sometimes it's the it's the and, it, and I'm I'm picking at myself too. Uh, but but sometimes it's the way these these appeals are prepared. I've taken over uh, claims and appeals from from other uh, national service officers, attorneys, agents, and I just shake my head. I think, what in God's name were you doing when you prepared that appeal? And I've seen some appeals, they just perfect, just nailed it. So I mean, it, it goes both ways. But 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 a lot of times, uh, uh, and this goes to all the veterans listening out, listening out there. Make sure you have a power of attorney who really knows what they're doing. And, and you can usually get a good gauge if they know what they're doing uh, by, by the way they listen to you, by the way they take time to listen to you, uh, by the types of uh, regulations that they talk to you about. You know, if, they, if they keep you in part of the conversation and, and, and you're usually able to tell a good power of attorney or service officer just by interacting with that person. But, but if, if, if you're not having a good feeling, uh, if things aren't shaking out the way they should and, and things are dragging out and the VA is making decisions that, that, uh, that appear valid, whereas the power of attorney should have taken it a different way, get a different power of attorney. I mean, you can switch. You can go to a different person. So you know, the point being, make that claim as strong as possible right off the bat. You can probably avoid yourself a, a number of years of agony. That's not with every case. I mean, it just, I point the finger at the VA more than anyone, but, but sometimes you just got to point the finger at, at the advocacy, the representatives, too. Absolutely. I agree with that. And that would eliminate a lot of the issues that's going on right now with the uh, claims process. I agree to that. But... Uh, uh, you know, it uh, 
it it's something that uh, when you do a claim, uh, you gotta be as thorough and as proper as you can without cluttering it up. <laughs> and uh, oh, uh, John, we're in nearly out of time. You want to give us uh, the people your contact information? Yep, yep, folks listening out there. Let me give you my phone number. Uh, Minnesota area code, uh, area code 651-303-3062. That's 651-303-3062. You can also email me, which might even be better, is uh, benefitsagent at comcast.net. That's benefits, B-E-N-E-F-I-T-S, agent, A-G-E-N-T, at comcast.net. Okay, with that, uh, John, I appreciate you coming on, and uh, well, that was a good show. You give us some good information here. Good and, information. Uh, yeah, really good information, good. and appreciate it. And I hope you know the listeners out there. Well, it's in the archives too, so uh, there'll be some benefit. Of this show, it's a good show. Uh, you always do a good show with us. Uh, well, I look forward to being on again, and you guys invite me back anytime. And uh, y'all take care, and veterans listening out there, or widows, you know, widows, widowers, give me a call. Okay, we appreciate okay. it, John. Thanks a lot. All right, good night. All right. Thank you. Good night. You've been listening to the Hadit.com Blog Talk Radio Show, sponsored by Hadit.com. All opinions expressed here are the opinions of the individuals appearing on the show and are not the opinions of Hadit.com or Blog Talk Radio. Tune in next time for another edition of Hadit.com Blog Talk Radio and the Ask Bachelor Show. <laughs>